Alright, man. Welcome to Crew at Triple Seven Radio. This will be episode 207. Jason Lingren is with me, and we have asked James True back. Uh, trying times for a lot of people in this world. I don't think we have to talk much about it. You can just look out your window and understand uh, that the world is changing very rapidly, and uh, there's stress involved in it. Some people are taking it in stride. Uh, we get mixed reports. Some people in San Diego, I'm told, are out everywhere going to the beach, and other people, not so much. It remains to be seen where this goes, but the reason we're having James back is to address the, the I don't even know what to call it, where this all likely goes. And uh, I don't really think it's, I, I don't think you can say that what we're about to lay down isn't really the end goal here. Welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. So do you have anything? We're going to be a bit ahead of ourselves here, but do you have anything for the intro? We are a bit ahead of ourselves, so I don't know if anything I say right now will be relevant, considering how quickly things are going. And that's the problem, and we are trying to run during this craziness uh, two shows a week. We've been doing Thursday, Saturday. Um, we'll see if we can keep it up. Well, if you don't have anything, we should get James in. Absolutely. Let's go for it. Mr. James True, welcome aboard. Uh, good morning, guys. We're, we're a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me back. Cool, man. How's it where you are? Uh, the, saw my first dandelion budding and uh, <laughs> got a squirrel looking at me all brave as he's eating the bird seed. He's just staring through the window. Like, yeah, come on, <laughs> come on out here. Try and get me. So and that's actually how I mark the, the, the calendar. Now, when I see the first crocus come up or when I see the first chipmunk come out, I say it's spring. Um, that's, that's, right. that's, that's my marker too. Um, it's, it's interesting coming from San Diego. You don't pay attention per se because the seasons aren't as important there, but here you see those crocus, you see those snow dabs, you know, it's on. And by the time the, uh, the yellow flowers are poking up there, you know, you're well underway, but, uh, we got a lot to go over here. When I saw the notes you'd written about the ideas around Solomon's temple, is that the, is that the right way that we should refer to it? Solomon's temple? Yeah, sure. We'll just refer to it as Solomon's Temple. People, I think, know what we're what we're referring to. Um, I saw your notes. I thought, yeah, this is exactly where I've been going. I've been doing Vatican research for quite some time now, months and months, um, and it actually will probably pair off pretty well. Uh, where would you like to get in here? Were there items in the news that that alerted you to this, or were you doing research lines? Yes, there there are items in the news that that caused me to mention this. And the big one was um, thanks to Trump. Uh, this is reported by the uh, paper called the Times of Israel dot com that uh, thanks to Trump, um, they have been uh, they are now officially asking the Israeli government for permission to have a blood sacrifice on the Temple Mount. Um, I say on because last year uh, something unprecedented happened that hasn't happened in 2000 years. They had a blood sacrifice within view of the Temple Mount. And uh, now they're actually asking to do it on the Temple Mount. And these are very important uh, rituals uh, that are there to sanctify and uh, basically reinstall the, temp the temple. And uh, the Talmudic uh, leadership is, is uh, claiming or, or giving thanks to Trump as the uh, harbinger of that possibility. In other words, it, it would not have been possible without the declaration um, of Jerusalem. So these are very slow steps, 
uh, very slow, methodical steps that have been taking place for thousands of years. And uh, and those steps have really, really come to the edge or the precipice uh, of where they've been heading this whole time, uh, which is this uh, the union of the of the temple. I, I mean, I didn't even know. Um, I think most people listening would be thinking, what? A blood sacrifice? Is that even a thing that happens in the century we exist in? Yeah. What, what was it that they sacrificed? This is last year. What was it? Was it like a sheep or a goat or something? Yeah, it was the past. Yeah, past, a lamb. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's a it's a lamb. It'll be a lamb this time too. And uh, uh, as above, so below. So those same sacrifices are going to be mirrored or resonated on other levels, um, either up the food chain or down the food chain. But that's really where you start to see the the really the kaleidoscope of Talmudic thinking. You know, it's very similar to being a Southern Baptist. Uh, not even to narrow or single any of those out. Really, you know, Hindu is the same way. You're gonna. When you go into that kaleidoscope of that one uh, cosmology, you're going to find just, you know, a myriad of directions inside of hallways, inside of doorways, inside of giant rooms that have other hallways with doors in those, you know. So uh, the, the important part, though, is that whenever there's an official approach to the temple, there is a very strong groupthink uh, structure or a pyramid scheme in place, much like any other religion you you know you might find. I think actually Catholicism is the perfect example of this, where you know you have a top pyramid that goes down, and the you know the Talmudic tradition has that too in Israel, and, and that's why it might not seem so odd to some of you that well that's why they're asking the government to do this you know it's the reason why they're asking the government to do it is because they need it to be sanctified and they need it to be resonated this is the very similar to when kushner bought that that building uh for on fifth avenue uh you know that was a giant giant purchase but he the, he bought that from the Rockefellers. It, it, it wasn't like he really wanted the building. In fact, he lost $600 million on 666 Fifth Avenue. He actually lost $600 million on that. It was a symbolic handing over of this. Uh, it's kind of sanctifying him and his family and his child, which, of course, you know, he's in the King Cyrus Trump clan, too. So all of these rituals are very important because they they cause the pyramid to point in the same direction because, uh, you know, what's coming from the top, everyone else uh, will try and resonate from what happens on the top so they can pull that oscillation into their own frequency and cause it to raise, too. Well, it's just so strange to think about. Um, I'm almost certain that the average person listening is thinking, really, we still do sacrifice of this type in the 21st century. But I got to ask, if it's a lamb, uh, this must be somehow tied to the sky clock, I'm guessing. Uh, is this an Aries thing? You know, the old ram's horn? You know where I'm going here. Mm-hmm. Um, is there some expectation that it would have to be at some point in the zodiacal scheme of things? There is a time frame of 220 years on the clock remaining. Um, the <clears throat> currently it's year 7,780, and uh, it's supposed to be an 8,000. And I'm, I'm almost positive it's 8,000 guys. If it's 6,000, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I it's been a long week. It, the clock's either 6,000 or 8,000 years. We are 220 years away from that, and so there is a sense of urgency. 
from the Talmudic tradition urgency, not from the individual, you know, uh, practitioners urgency. Although it's part of the faith of the devout, it's part of the of the devout's faith that they will can rush along as much as they can. Um, in fact, uh, Netanyahu gets a lot of, of flack from this from his elders. They are constantly in public because they get virtue from this. They they are looked at as virtue leaders if in public they can sort of almost shame him into saying in public, you're not doing enough. You, you are not pushing this forward fast enough. And that creates you know, very much like at a Southern Baptist conference where, you know, one person would get up and, and you know, be a louder or a more boisterous, you know, voice than others, you end up pacing the rest of the crowd. So you have built into the system uh, a natural quest for victory. And as we all know, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, is overcome by Nike, the goddess of victory. She uh, is adorning Athena with the crown of victory, and therefore wisdom is subdued. Uh, wisdom has now uh, been thwarted by the quest for victory. And this happens all across the, the spectrum in our politics, in our religions, and in, in our psychology. Um, it's that quickening, you know, like the movie The Highlander. It's all about the quickening. You you get a frenzy of people into believing there can be only one. And, you know, you end up with a nice giant cockfight that lasts for thousands of years. So what's interesting about everything you've just mentioned is this. Everybody knows that every, as an example, a Masonic place. Um, that's standing in for Solomon's Temple, right? Mm -hmm. uh, very few people are aware that Pope Julius II, supposedly, he, he was the nephew of the Pope, who I can't recall, who started rebuilding the Sistine Chapel. That was being a replica of Solomon's Temple. Very few people know. As a matter of fact, there's not a single New Testament thing added uh, by the so-called Michelangelo under the aegises of Pope Julius II. My point here is pretty clear a lot of things that have gone on in the world think solomon's temple is a pretty big deal and so i would ask is it just about somehow starting the spiritual ideas behind this or does the temple have to be rebuilt and i would also add there's a structure there now but if i'm not mistaken it's an islamic structure isn't it this is an interesting point of contention just as I was talking about how, you know, there's different factions that think different things. The older tradition uh, does believe that that the Dome on the Rock, the, the current uh, mosque, is where their Temple Mount's supposed to be. However, there's a very, very large faction uh, inside the Talmudic tradition that says, no, it's actually in the city of David. And uh, it's actually just down the hill. So, uh, you know, you, from that mosque, you would look down, and then you would see what is actually the temple. The argument is over the, the walls around it. The walls around this uh, temple had to have been a uh, certain size to accommodate the historical record. The Wailing and, Wall, you mean? Uh, well, yeah, the Wailing Wall is part of it, too. It, it's, okay. it's, it's, it's all through. There's also a lot of speculation about the spring. You know, there's a spring underneath Jerusalem, and that spring's very important. And where that spring is found is supposed to be within a certain distance uh, from the temple. There, there's there's really a lot of these things that I'm telling you, and and I'm I'm probably worse than a layman as I'm explaining them to you now. But I just want you to know this is really the kaleidoscope of the Talmudic tradition. This is an oral tradition, guys. It's not written, and so you end up with really just a a menagerie, you know, of different thoughts and philosophies, and all those compete in the open market of the zeitgeist, you know, of, of inside their group mind for who's going to be right. 
And so um, at first, I think a couple years ago, there was a lot of concern about is there going to be a giant clash uh, between, uh, say, the Islamic, you know, the mosque and the temple. And then it seems like there's been more of a passivity that's come along where it's like, actually, no, these, these, are, these are complementary. They go the same. Personally, I believe that, that the way this will... So I believe this is all planned. This is a blueprint. Um, you, you set this out thousands of years ago, and uh, because you write it long enough and say it long enough, uh, people believe that it's like prophecy, and, and that literally is what a prophecy is. <laughs> it's someone said this is what's going to happen, but it's happening because they planned it. And w- what I think you're seeing happening is a convergence between the cross and the crescent. This is a very, very important symbolic uh, union. Uh, the, these these symbols of the cross and the crescent, you actually see in the uh, all over the place. In fact, if you if you look at the communist flag, uh, you'll see a cross and a crescent in there. Mm. And there's long been this tradition of trying to marry these two symbols, these two towers, really, because if you really understand, you know, the the traditions of both religions, what you really see is these are twins. These are twin towers. One's mercy, and uh, one's not. And uh, these two towers work together, though, uh, just like any kind of resonance or any kind of spell. Uh, they're used to bring energy together. You've got a positive pole and a negative pole, and that's a Jacob's Ladder. It's a potential for energy. It's a potential for power. That, that's why I mentioned earlier, this, a lot of this is resonance going, you know, as above, so below. So the people that are uh, competing for their ideas really have a strong conviction about what's going to bring about the most resonance, even if they're not actually using the word resonance. It, it, this is really how it boils down, I think, and when it comes to their belief system. Before I kick this over to Jason, and I noticed you brought you know incense ideas, which I was unaware of, but I, I mean, I'll go one more time at this. Isn't the structure that's standing there isn't that called the Al-Aqsa Mosque? Is that correct? And by the way, isn't it round, actually? I'm not sure. I'm trying to pull this from memory. I didn't realize we were going to get so heavily into this. But my point would be is everybody who's seen any Hollywood movie has seen versions of Solomon's Temple. They've been told how important the kind of measurements and the shape and where the holies of holies. So, I mean, is, is, the, is the real goal here to get that exact structure rebuilt? Or is the thing that's sitting there now usable? So this is a great question, because if you are a believer that the temple, the the original temple, was where that mosque is, then as your quest for residence dictates, you would want to put the third temple or to install the third temple back where it originally was, because then you'll tap into the resonance that cannot be repeated. How do you go back into history thousands of years and, you know, hit the note, strike the tuning fork that causes the historical resonance too? So uh, this is why I was saying that so many people, there's an interesting argument that's happening because it's, you know, some are really convinced it has to be there and others are like, no, but the resonance is so important that we have to find the right place. And I think it's down here. Not only that, the, the Temple Mount itself, the, the actual temple had to be built in a very, very specific way. No, no steel can be used at all in the cutting of any of the stone. And so if you were to find the original stone, not only would you have the resonance there, but you would also have something that is pure, something that hasn't been, quote, quote, corrupted uh, by iron. Uh, it, it, they say it's corrupting because iron is used to kill, and therefore 
they cannot use it to build the temple. And think about it. This is why the sacrifice is so crucial, because they need that rock to be a virgin. That rock has to have a, a Parthenia. Parthenia is this idea of, of spiritual purity. Uh, in fact, the Parthenon was named after this, um, that when that temple rock has that Parthenia to it, only then when the blood of, of the sacrifice is shed on it, is it a consecration in virginity. That, that's such a crucial, crucial part of this. So this is all about resonance. This is all about, it's actually even more because it's internal. What it really is, is, is it's about how do we uh, ignite the most chemistry do we install the temple here? Do we install the temple here? So there, what's going to work is always going to be what works. You know, the magic is a sacrifice of time and electricity uh, multiplied by will. And how those three things function is going to be a function of what everyone's currently believing. And more importantly, what you can entrain them to believe. I say entrain very specifically because as a Talmudic leader, it would be your job to hear the zeitgeist around you, the group think around you, and use use the art of politics, persuasion, philosophy to sway people into your line of thinking, your your thesis, so to speak. All right, I'm going to kick this over to Jason. But for one thing, I can't even you know I, I wasn't even aware of this. How, how do they? How are they doing this without like PETA? going up in arms and getting ballistic. Um, it's a wonder, but but I would also add, how is it that such an important building, uh, there's really no evidence of it, is there? Um, people are still arguing about where it actually was. Um, and yet we can see every Masonic hall is a stand-in for Solomon's temple. As I just mm -hmm. pointed out, my research for the Vatican, the so-called man, Michelangelo, um, I have issues with a lot of things that were told about him. Uh, he didn't paint a single New Testament picture on the Sistine Chapel dome. Um, there are some New Testament things down lower that he didn't have to do with. Actually, I think he did one at the altar later. But my point is, even that under the uncle of Julius II, who was Pope at the time of the painting, supposedly, um, that is a stand-in for the temple. So this idea of the temple is everywhere in all these religious traditions. And yet, is there evidence that it was there? I'm just asking. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that's why I'm saying I think you're going to find many people that are going to absolutely swear that there's evidence and here's my evidence. And then you're going to find other people that are going to swear you're wrong. <laughs> and here's my evidence why you're wrong, you know, and Crazy. this is part this is part of the chemistry of belief, isn't it? Because yeah. you, you can't just tell someone, well, you're wrong. The, the Talmudic leader that 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 is going to harness the most magic is going to be the one that convinces everyone or entrains, you know, this is through pacing, right? You, you want to pace someone. The way you pace someone is very, uh, it's very methodical. It's a very scientific method. You, you, if someone's playing a G on a guitar, you're not going to be able to get them to, to tune their string a little bit. If you, if you play a C, you're going to need to play like a G sharp, a G and a half sharp. <laughs> and, and as they listen to that, they're going to be, you know, I'm a little bit flat and they, they're going to tune up just a little bit to entrain. And then after they've tuned up, you're going to take them up to G sharp now. And then they're going to go up to G sharp. And that's what the Talmudic leaders are doing with each other. This is how you raise the Tower of Babel. And I use that Tower of Babel because that's going to be inside of any kind of group think, where when you have this sense of, of victory 
and that there can be only one, everyone's going to be competing for who's going to be on top of that tower. And the person on top of the tower is the one that is in training the rest of them. That This is precisely why uh, politicians like, for example, Donald Trump have to be so extreme because you have to get out ahead of the pack. And then once you're ahead of the pack and you're running, then you can set the pace for them. That typically they will they will tend to run, set into your pace for a while and they'll run the race like that. And as long as you keep putting your racer in and, and you can push him up to the lead for a while, you can take the entire pack literally anywhere you want, you know, because they're just pacing. This is just part of our ingrained uh, way that we live, or at least under under these kind of thought, these ideologies. All right, Jason, it's all you. I'm going to sit here and I'm not going to light any incense. Well, what I would like to bring up is this concept of the holiest of holies, which is also sanctum sanctorum in Latin, which is an odd dream I had a few years back, but I don't need to go there right now. How do all these things relate? I've actually been looking at pictures while you guys have been talking about this. So we have Solomon's Temple. We know that the Freemasons use that as a template. And then it seems to also tie in with Catholic structures, and I even saw some Indian structures. What about this concept of the holiest of holies? Is this where all the energy of whatever it is they're supposed to be doing is being channeled? And is that why we see this concept reflected in different cultures? Yeah, absolutely. It's a capacitor. The arc itself is a capacitor inside of a room that's a capacitor that is inside of a larger room that is a capacitor that is inside of a larger room. That is a capacitor. So that's your outer temple, which is bronze. That's the color bronze. And then your the holy place. Once you go inside of there, um, then you have you have gold, but you also have you have bread. You have a special kind of bread that uh, a light bread. Uh, the twelve loaves uh, are supposed to represent the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone's supposed to eat those loaves. But that that bread is, according to research, is. Uh, has metallic elements in it. It's actually used as some sort of conduit. And then that's the holy place. And then if you want to get into the holy of holies, well, this is what I meant by it's always a tower because only one person, only one can go into the holy of holies. And he can only do that on Yom Kippur, which I think is September 23rd, I think, uh, this year. 27, Um, I think maybe. Okay, thank you. Uh, and by the way, it's 6,000 years. Uh, I said I wasn't sure if it was eight or six, but it's 6,000. But uh, uh, it, it on that day, Yom Kippur, that high priest will attach bells to his robes and will tie a string uh, to himself, a, a thread, and will walk into that place. And that thread is supposed to be to pull him out if he dies. Uh, they don't want a, a body in there that they can't retrieve. As he goes in there, um, he cannot go in unless the holy incense is burning, and it's a very special chemistry. There are 11 ingredients uh, in this incense. And last year, something happened that hasn't happened in 2,000 years. Ten of those 11 uh, instances were, were burned. They, you know, a, a concoction of those was made, and it was burned. And um, we don't know, uh, we just don't know if they would, if they're going or they've asked to burn 11 of 11. I would assume that if the actually, I'm not going to assume because it's actually written this way. If they approve the sacrifice on the Temple Mount, it begins a process that cannot be reversed. It's a uh, clockwork where you've now set the domino, and the domino is now supposed to fall. And if you are into simulating the future by looking at the facts on the ground, 
then that tells you a lot about what is inside the temple right now and what has already been prepared, what, what is ready for that. The temple is all about being ready for it. The readiness has been occurring for, you know, for thousands of years. In fact, you saw a lot of, of leaders saying, I want to build the, the new gold candlesticks, and I want to build the, the new tablecloth, and I want to be in charge of this. And they were competing for the honor of providing these objects for the temple. That's a very, very high honor. So again, now you're looking at a lot of politics. Again, just like any religion, you know, you've got competition for who wants that. And you, know, you guys, it's not hard to imagine how valuable that honor would be Therefore, how much someone would be willing to do to have that honor. So this is a lot like Lance Armstrong, you know, <laughs> and uh, the bicycle racing where there's going to be some doping going on. If you're going to be that high up where where you actually might be the person that's allowed to put something uh, in the temple. So this is a very cutthroat competition, just like you would see in any other uh, in any other uh, industry, really. So those pieces are now all done. All the pieces that are required have been built, forged, made, uh, smelted, whatever. They're, they're ready. And because they're ready, you can still make them and they sit around. In fact, they sit around for a couple hundred years. Some of those pieces did. But once the sacrifice happens, once you sanctify it, it's go time. And that's when a lot of the ritual kicks in and a lot of automatic things starts to happen. And that's why I think it's important to understand that this moment blood touches that stone is going to set off uh, the next Yom Kippur, uh, the high priest is going to enter uh, the Holy of Holies. That's when I think you really have to look at what the Ark is and and what that building's for. Uh, and, and, and the fact that all the walls on all those buildings is an insulator. There's gold on the inside and the outside, and then the inside is wood, the middle of it's wood. They're, they're all insulated capacitors like that. And uh, it's there's very specific rules about what's allowed to happen. Now, once blood hits that stone, other people are now going to want to come and sacrifice at the temple. That's very important because your sacrifice at the temple is your display of devotion. And that display of, of devotion um, is important for the electrical connection inside your body to broadcast your belief to send your magic, to, to enact your will uh, upon that sacrifice. So this one sacrifice is going to uh, spur a lot of other sacrifices. And I would imagine that those sacrifices are not going to be seen or talked about. Uh, those are not, no one who is not inside of, or a, uh, no one who hasn't, you can't just enter the outer temple, you know, you, you, you're not going to be able to do that. And that's where the sacrifice uh, takes place. So those are going to be more private ceremonies. And I would imagine there's going to be quite a lot of them. Um, you know, if this is something you believe in and you've been wanting it your whole life and you see for the first time in thousands and thousands of years that you, you yourself could have the honor of making a sacrifice inside the temple, you're going to do that. And not only that, you're going to spend a lot of money and a lot of effort to, to, uh, make that the best thing you could possibly come up with. So imagine all the psychic energy that's being poured into that. These sacrifices, uh, it's not like you can just go buy a lamb. You have to know this lamb. You have to love this lamb. You have to raise this lamb from, a, from you know, whatever a baby lamb is called. You, you have to pour your prana into it. And it's that love 
that you are sacrificing for no reason at all for your own substance, you know, for it's not for meat, it's not for anything else except for this one. I'm going to call it a spell because really I think that's a more technical way of looking at it, except for this one uh, casting of devotion to God. That's a very, very important ceremony. And it requires you to really feel that loss, to really look at that and kind of go through a threshold of there's no going back now. Like, <laughs> like I killed something I love for this. I got to add something. It's all, I mean, I, I want to start singing that song. Was it How bizarre, how bizarre. It feels so out of time to be mm-hmm. talking about this. And I'm imagining really, are that many people really going to be into sacrificing things in this day and age? Um, but I've got to add something here. When you start talking about Yom Kippur, the first time I ever paid attention or tried to figure out what that was about, believe it or not, was when I accidentally filmed the 2012 Lunar Wave, the first one or the best example we've seen, probably. Not only did it actually happen, which I discovered years later on a true equinox, equal day and night, it was on Yom Kippur, if I'm not mistaken, because I ended up looking, what's Yom Kippur about? And it's the day of atonement and all these things. And I started thinking it was it's the day of at one man and, and the finger of God coming down to forgive or, or these types of ideas. I remember looking at it, but isn't it interesting that all those years ago, I accidentally filmed the first lunar wave on this day. Um, and the reason I'm bringing it up is I'm just going to ask you, a lot of people are not electricians. Can you just tell us what a capacitor is? What does a capacitor do? Yeah, really, it's fascinating, the, the idea of, Two towers, you know, I talk about that a lot. It's it's one of the main topics of my book, Technology of Belief, is this concept of two towers, which is a Masonic tradition too, you know, that Joaquin and Boaz are the two towers. And so a capacitor really works similar way to a two towers. Um, a capacitor is a rolled piece of, I'm just going to use the word paper for now, but it doesn't have to be paper. But there are modern day capacitors in your electronic device is a rolled piece of paper that is separated by an insulator. And it's that insulator that allows uh, the difference, the the long stretch of difference. You know, if you could unroll a capacitor, but just to exaggerate, so I can explain, uh, if you could unroll a capacitor, it would maybe you know reach a hundred feet long, and but that hundred feet is rolled tight in and of itself, but it never actually touches the other side. So you have uh, one side is an electrical conduit, another side is electrical conduit, but then in the middle you've got something that's not. So for example, a piece of glass with uh, two pieces of aluminum foil on either side, that's the perfect example of a modern day capacitor. Uh, What a capacitor does is it ingests, holds, and then releases a charge. And it can hold a charge literally for years. It's going to depend on the quality of the capacitor. Some of the old television sets that we used to have, the old boob tubes, had these capacitors in them, and they were so deadly, you could actually find one that had been had been unplugged for a year, and the capacitor inside still has the charge. Right now, what we call batteries are currently being uh, replaced with high-end, high-capacity capacitors. Basically, it's going to allow you to send a ton of electrons into that paper and just store a bunch of them. And because it's separated, because there's a a capacitor in between, the electrons are in no hurry to go anywhere. There's not a difference for them. They are in an equilibrium inside the paper. But the second you activate that capacitor, say by touching the poles together or by running a circuit through it, all that energy that's stored in that paper is going to notice, holy cow, everything on this side of me is positive and everything on this side of me is negative. 
I have to fix this in a millisecond. <laughs> and that millisecond is power. That is what causes the spark to happen. This is literally the flow of electricity. When you see a Jacob's ladder, the spark gap between them is that. It's, I'm so positive and you're so negative. Let's let's do it, man. Let's make, you know, let's Reese's cup this thing right now. And they end up, you know, combining and forming this whole other energy that that you didn't even know was there. So it, it's, this is all about electronics. This is all about uh, electrical theory. The, the, the entire building in my opinion, is an electrical conduit for plasma. And that's that's why it's so important to me that people understand that belief is plasma. It, it's tangible. Not only is it tangible, it can be put into something like an arc. It can be stored and then it can be dumped later. But you want the energy in there that's super high, high amperage. You want some serious amps put, put in there if you're going to waste your time. If you're going to kill your favorite goat, you're going to want it to be worth something. You're going to want that to go somewhere and you're going to want to keep that energy. And I think that's really what what the, in my opinion, that's what the Solomon's Temple is all about. It's a uh, a vessel, a container for, for all that electrical magic energy. Intention capacitor, huh? It's funny you were saying about the uh, the old televisions. That's something I learned a long time ago about guitar amps as well. Don't go poking around in there in a tube amp. You will kill yourself, literally. Yep. And the reason why I bring that up is because it taught me a long time ago about the concept of how things can be stored and redirected. And you really do need to be careful about what you do, even in an esoteric sense. Things can store energy and be redirected in a way that you may not realize. And I don't know if you would call that philosophical or not, but I think these concepts can be applied in a literal sense, in a physical sense, like we're talking about electronic apparatus. But then we're talking about this in a more esoteric sense where, what would you call it, magical energy? I think prana is the word you use, right? Yeah, in fact, I think the, the prime example of this is what happens when you activate a man and you activate a woman, and you suddenly join them together in passion. What, what happens? A freaking stargate opens. A literal stargate opens inside, and she releases <laughs> a being from another world. And all of that is a capacitor. A couple is a capacitor. A marriage is a capacitor. And you build up energy in between them and either you short each other out because because you don't have a healthy relationship or you learn to direct that energy with your will into something really positive. It, there, this is the concept of Moonchild is a, a book uh, some of you guys might have read that the idea is, is that let's not just make a baby. Let's make the baby on the waxing moon at the corner of the great sacred year at the apex of the of the feast in line with the meridian points of the 33rd parallel uh, facing north wall inside of this building that is the historical land of Aleister Crowley uh, marked in this. When you do all those things, what you're really doing is, is that you're jacking up your belief. You're, you're, you're inside your head going, holy shit, look at all these coincidences all lining up in this perfect convergence. Like if all the planets were to come together and while they came together, you were just, oh, just put your seed just deep, deep, deep in that hole. You end up with a serious, serious capacity of magic. I, I don't mean to be graphic, guys. I'm just trying to explain that this is exactly how, how it works. This isn't even a, this is just magic. This is, and I don't even like using the word magic because people think I'm 
talking about something that's not real. This is where you get your ideas, the chemistry in your mind. Your mind is a capacitor. You'll have an idea that you'll store, and you're storing this energy in it for years and years and years. I've always had this concept about Michelangelo. I've always wondered, huh? And then I'll come along and I'll say, hey, did you know turkeys like Wednesday? And because I said that, something inside of you causes that connection to complete that Jacob's ladder inside your head goes, and you now have a new idea. You have born out of the Stargate a new concept that you did not think before. And it was only because of this capacitance and and uh, the releasing of the capacitance. It's, it's all about the rubber band, you know? You, you stretch the rubber band out for one reason, because you're getting ready to let it go. And that, my friends, is magic. You know, we can also make a transhumanism comment here in that these people supposedly want to transfer themselves or merge themselves with machines and AI and all that. Well, where is the energy that we're talking about, this life-giving energy, going to be in all of that? I don't see how that could possibly work in a realistic sense with all of what we're discussing here. Mm. Well, well, there's another there's another side of this. Let me jump in real quick, James. You know, uh, you could ask a simple question. I know people are thinking it. Why is all this secret? Why is all this hidden? You know, if you begin to logically go at it, you could say, well, because it's not socially acceptable and what people are doing are going to offend a hell of a lot of people. Like the idea of sacrificing an animal, you already know that's going to cause trouble all over the place because people in this day and age mostly don't want to see animals treated in that way. But more so, you could begin to ask, well, it's hidden because there's something to it, right? And I think to me, it's both of those things. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, to me, it's all about resonance in the sense that it's going to be every whatever's going to hit on as many of the synchronicities as possible is going to be what jacks up the most belief inside yourself. Personally, I think it's all going to come from inside of a human that's directing it. He's simply using the props around him as the conduit to cause the spark to occur or to cause the capacitor to charge, to fill it with that prana. And if you have a bunch of other people that are agreeing with you that are like, yeah, 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 what he said, that's going to make you find even more electricity to pour inside that capacitor uh, that could be used later on. Well, look, look at right now. Look at the electricity, the, pl- the belief plasma that's in the air right now, driving mm-hmm. all the fear around the world. What you're describing is exactly what's happened here. The biggest contagion in the world right now is fear. How's that transmitting. Uh, I think it's a good point, but let me cut to the chase and not be uncertain about any of this. Are you saying, because you pointed out there were 10 incenses burned last time around and the next time it'll be 11 when 11 burns, when the sacrifice is made, then the clockwork, you know, then the Rube Goldberg machine starts. Right. Uh, right. right? <laughs> I think you know what I'm getting at. Um, yeah. So the machine starts. Doesn't that imply, I I mean, there's no way I can think of that. The temple has to be rebuilt in the minds of these people, doesn't it? Everywhere you see the measurements, everywhere you see stand-ins for it. Even, you know, how many people realize when you walk into the Sistine Chapel, that kind of white screen, that white carved screen, that's where the curtain goes to mark the Holy of Holies. So even, even the Sistine Chapel is mimicking these things. So when the Rube Goldberg machine begins, that pretty much means they're going to rebuild something, doesn't it? Absolutely. You nailed it. And, and I'll tell you, you, you just opened a door for me because I'm I, I'm realizing that if you were to build every chapel and the person who designed it said, well, yeah, we're doing this to mimic the King Solomon's temple. 
what you're really doing is setting a protocol where all of the prana that is collected inside that building is actually on behalf of King Solomon's temple. Do you see what I mean? Mm. It, it, people are pouring. So it, it's almost like a tax, I think, because it, it's, not like, it's not like they can totally steal your prana where it goes. But most of us are not fully seated in our magic. So we're pouring prana out all the time. We're giving it to the wrong people all the time. People don't understand that they are like a, a spotlight uh, on the, in the back of a stage, pointed down at the stage, but the spotlight doesn't turn off. And you're walking away to go get, go get a soda. And meanwhile, the, the spotlight swings and lands on a psychopath. And he's, he's getting all that light now while you're outside, you know, chewing on, on some cud. And then you come back in and you're like, oh, and then you put it back on on innocence or whatever, or on whatever it is you want to focus on. And then you got to go to the bathroom. So you leave again. There's a vigilance that's required to your magic, to your plasma. And they don't want you to even understand that that word exists because they know if you don't even give a shit, they're going to be able to steer that wherever they want and take that funnel and put it wherever they want. This is why you always have a main structure to religion. You need a central pole, a maypole. You need something as a collector. What is the Eiffel Tower? But a exactly. giant antenna placed exactly. on top of 200 miles of, of displaced bones inside the catacombs of limestone. And what is limestone but salt? So all that energy is stored and collected inside there. What is the Twin Towers? But inside a giant round circle in Manhattan that's collecting all that, that energy, all that energy of the terror that happened, for example. All that stuff is collected, and it's used for very specific purposes. And the person that can be there first and sign his name to it, this is crucial, he has to sign his name to it. This is why you see 33 everywhere right now with COVID-19. If you sign your name to it, you're getting all that prana. You're claiming ownership of it. And when we as researchers see it, we go, look at all these 33s. We don't realize that when we notice that connection, we're feeding them. You know, Do you understand? We're yeah, feeding them. I, I, I totally understand. And when you started going at the Eiffel Tower, I am with you all day long. That thing has so much more going on. Everyone just thinks it's a pretty thing that was put up at a world fair or whatever you want to call it. So much more, including the eye in London, similar thing going on there yep. from my point of view. But here's the thing. I remember years ago, I was researching something and there was this claim that we read left to right, that that's a perversion. Somewhere along the way, we did everything backwards. Mm -hmm. originally it was all right to left. I remember at the time thinking, yeah, right, come on. And then I kept coming back to the idea. And then I came to reality and I started saying, well, I don't really know. So this is possible until I know something more than I know now, this is possible. And the more I learned, the more I began to question, am I really reading backwards? My whole life, have I been reading backwards? And everything we're pointing out here is a bit like living a life that's read backwards, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You don't yeah. understand the most basic things about nature, and I'm not defending them, because I will live and die by the idea that a thing that is acceptable, that you could be proud of, that is godly, for lack of better terms, that goes into the light of day. And the things we're talking about here, not so much. They're lied about. They're hidden. They're connived. You know, governments and other things that are known to be dishonest end up moving these balls forward. And so my problem here is just by the very nature of how we things, see things getting accomplished, it's underhanded, man. Mm -hmm. And I think the world is so sick and tired of underhanded. What a day it would be if we woke up tomorrow 
and stuff that was respectable was out in the sunlight as it should be. And things that couldn't come out in the sunlight were no longer because no one's going to respect it. But it's really not where we are, is it? I tell you, on that point, I'd like to give an example to explain even more how the ownership works. If I was to lie to you and tell you that an apple tree came from a guy named Steve, if you were to believe that, I would hold a piece of power over you. Every time that you thought, yeah, all apple trees are made by a guy named Steve, believe it or not, a little bit of your plasma would come to me. But if I could convince you and everyone else that apples are all made by a guy named Steve, I would collect energy from everybody. And, and, and I can actually show you how I would collect it. Let's say that, that, that I convinced Jason of that. I don't think Jason would, would even fall for that, but I just, I just need you as an example, Jason. If I was to, to convince you of that, let's say I walk into a coffee shop two weeks from now and Jason's in there and I overhear Jason say, I overhear him say, hey, did you know apples are made by a guy named Steve? If I'm a psychopath, I just got a little boner. Like I just, I just got like a little bump, didn't I? Because I'm listening to that and I'm realizing, holy cow, I installed that and it's spreading. It's alive. I just had a child inside that guy's mind. And I'm the only person in this entire coffee shop that knows something that they don't. And what is a secret society but the hoarding of information from its followers? When you hoard information like that, which means you're going to have to lie to them because truth is going to be harder to hoard. You're going to want the more lies you can inject that are more believable, the more prana you're going to collect every time you see it repeated. It's a natural bump that you're going to get. It's no different than when you were in high school and you made that three-point shot right at the buzzer, right, right when the buzzer was going off and you won the game. All that prana that everyone gave you that day in the stadium in that game is a capacitor that lasts for eternity. You could be 30 years older and at your at your reunion, at your high school reunion, and when you walk in, you are receiving an electrical charge from everybody in that room who remembers. And when they tell you that, what they're really doing is they're coming up to you and they're 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 scrubbing their feet across the carpet. They're like and they're building up their static electricity and they're coming up to you and they're like, I would like to give you energy. And they're and you're like, okay. And you're opening your pocket with this little metal device and they're touching their finger into that device. And now your capacitor has uh, 16 more volts of electricity at its disposal. This is how it works. So it it is underhanded, Crow, but but I really want to specify that, guys, the only reason why it's underhanded is because we don't understand magic. Because if you understood magic, you would get how this works. You would understand how it works. And more importantly, you would have a cipher now, a awesome cipher, where you could look at someone and not see them as a psychopath who's evil, see them as a psychopath who's profiting. You got to stop looking at them as hideously evil. Instead, you need to look at them as, I understand what that guy's doing. He's getting ready to steal some bananas. You stalk him. You understand him. And you stop saying things like, oh, well, anything can happen. Instead, you go, no, I know this guy's motives. I know how he profits. I know what could happen. And I know how this could hurt. And then suddenly, then you can see right through the veil and you understand exactly this is happening in broad daylight, like right in front of us. 
So here's the thing, man. And I ask this question all the time. Does being honest and doing things that can go right out into the light of day with the idea that what you're doing, the intent and what you're doing is respectable, godly, a thing you can be proud of. Do those ideas matter? If we went back to a supposed ancient Rome and we went to the Vestal Virgins, do those ideas matter? To me, they do. And what I would point out here as we begin to wrap up our one is that the reason we don't understand magic is because of underhanded activity. And here's what I would liken it to. If you walked into a city where a few people had weapons, those people would be powerful compared to everyone else, wouldn't they? But if you walked into a city where everybody, if they wanted it, had the same weapon, what happens? Uh, the power of that weapon is diminished. The argument will be made, well, if that happened, everyone would be dropping like flies. And there'd be, But the truth is, and everybody knows it, when power finds an equilibrium across a large group of people, it's very rarely brought to bear on one another because it's like the old ridiculous Cuban missile crisis idea, right? Well, you got this weapon, but so do we. So mutual destruction is assured. And even though that's all nonsense, the idea of it is sound. And I would just point out, I think the main takeaway for me in all of this is, does it make a difference in this world to do things that are you would consider godly, that you would trot out into the light of day in front of anyone, in front of your mother, all the things you do? That's how proud you are. Or does that not matter at all? Is that being a stupid child? You don't understand how the game's played. If you're not going to break some eggs, you're never going to matter in this world. And for my part, I am all about that it does damn well matter that the idea of those Vestal Virgins back in the day, that was not poppycock. That was not nonsense. That was unsullied, a thing that is pride and showable on a level that can't be really quantified. But as we wrap up hour one, Jason, is there anything you want to get in here? There are going to be a lot of things we touch on in hour two that we definitely had to skirt around for hour one. I think that is kind of obvious. But since we're in the midst of a pretty rough situation, I just want to remind everyone to please be cool to each other and keep your higher mindedness about you. There it is, man. Uh, there is no better time than now that if you see someone in need and you have the wherewithal to help them, to stop what you were doing and help them. And don't be fearful. There's no reason. Human beings have been together in this world for as long as there's been human beings. It's provable. And you know how it's provable? Because children exist. There's your proof. But anyhow, thank you so much for our one, James. And as Jason stated, we have a lot of things that we will be able to expound on much more in hour two, just simply because if you say certain words, an algorithm is going to accuse you of nonsensical things that are not true. We're going to open this up. We're going to get into the idea of the temples. I've done so much research around the Vatican that my jaw dropped over the last couple of months when I began to realize all the things I didn't know. And it all has to do with exactly what James brought to the table. Because for some reason in this world, Solomon's temple is the apex of everybody in the mind of somebody. But join us for hour two of 207 over at crow777radio.com. That is C-R-R-O-W 777radio.com. By the way, that is the only Crow site. There are fraud sites out there up to no good. So again, crow777radio.com is the only true Crow site. Everything else is a fraud. Join us for hour two. On this particular episode, we are now going to blow open into so many things that we couldn't touch with a 11-foot pole, if you want a pun to close this out. 
There it is. Cheers. Is the enemy of knowing. Come.